morning. Good morning, everyone. Welcome. We're going to get going now. So, yeah, welcome to the, the first of uh, hopefully um, many of these kind of sessions over the, the next year. And uh, I just want to welcome Ian, who's going to be taking us through looking at our wills. Oh, and thank you. Thank you very much. <laughs> And uh, yeah, in, into the future, we'll see what other, other key topics um, need to be put on the table, but th this is where we're going to start. Um, obviously, it's going to take place over a couple of sessions. Um, the first one, obviously, this morning, Ian's going to focus a lot more just around the theory, um, around wills, and really to give us a basis of why we should be thinking um, around the decisions that we need to be making in the wills. Um, we're going to have a follow-up session, which is going to be on the 4th of June. Um, that's really when we're going to get practical around the wills and actually start really putting down some of the decisions um, into um, a worksheet around what we want to see in our specific wills. And that will then be followed up at a later date, um, still to be confirmed, um, where we will have a, a signing party where we'll make sure that these things are all signed off uh, properly and legally and, and so on. Um, but that, that date will be communicated um, into the future. So without further ado, I'm going to hand over to Ian. Thank you, Grant. And just, we, are, we do have the technology, just so that we are, we are recording the session. I know there's, there's one or two people that have asked that um, they get their hands onto the recordings afterwards, which I'm sure we can make available. Um, and questions is just helpful if we also record those so if you during the morning have a question for Ian um, let's uh, put it into the microphone so that we can record those as well all right thanks thanks Ian thank you um, Charmaine very kindly has run off some speaker notes so you'll have some speaker notes if you haven't got a notepad as Grant has already said today is going to be a little bit about theory so I was very fortunate enough to look at who was going to be here today. And I've tried to pitch this slate, uh, straight down the middle from uh, both an intellectual perspective, and I don't mean that in any disrespect to anybody, but also in terms of status in life. I don't know where you're at. I don't know what your finances are. And I'm going to prod some really pertinent things today, specifically around your will. I've called it estate planning, and I've done so for a very specific reason. And you'll see when we move through this what I mean. So the very first thing that I want to state is this. We are all going to die with an estate, and we are therefore all going to die with a last will and testament. But the big difference between some and others is what will distinguish some from others is whether we choose how our estate is to be distributed or whether we're going to allow our government to choose for us. And I pause for effect. <laughs> and that's the hard, cold story of it. Either... You are going to choose for yourself what you want to see happen with your earthly possessions, or you're going to let the state do so for you. And uh, I'm not going to go into that today, because if I start to talk about intestate succession 
and what goes on in the master's office, you will all want to weep. So we'll leave that for another day. So we've got two sets of laws that govern this overarching document in your estate planning called a will. The first is the law of testate succession. It's the Wills Act. And then the other part of it is the law of intestate succession. So we are a set of laws that tell us what to do and how we've got to go about stuff when you have a will and it is not signed. Or you've got a will that is signed and you think it's okay, but it ain't. Because you had a muhu draw it up for you. Usually it's the bank. And I love banks for all that they're worth. But in my opinion, they don't do a very good job of doing wills. Because it's nothing more than a commoditized item. And later on, when we start talking tactics, because I'm going to give you some hints and tips and tricks what to look out for and how to plan your specific will, uh, I'll tell you all about executor's fees, and that's exactly what they're after. So we've got total freedom of testation in this country. We're one of the very few countries on the planet that allow us to do with our estate what we have built up over our lifetime, utterly and totally and completely. We can say what we want in a will. We can do what we want in a will. And we will not have any law of state tell us otherwise. I was recently talking to, and I, I lecture a bunch of chartered accountants. They're 62. I absolutely love them. I call them my kids. They are all much older than me, so some of them are old enough to be my dad. And they are predominantly Jewish. So you want to know what 62 male Jews chartered accountants <laughs> in a room is like? It is really hairy, and it can be hysterically funny. Uh, so I, <laughs> I did this. I did a very similar, obviously it was a lot more technical because I could pitch techniques, uh, technicalities and law and what have you at these guys. And I spoke about this very thing of freedom of speech in a will. So you are allowed to leave last messages behind. You can tell your great Auntie Mary what you actually did think of her. <laughs> and... <laughs> So I bring this point up, and the one guy goes, I had a horrible uncle. And when my father died, he said, Dear Harry, you thought I didn't recognize you and wouldn't mention you in my will. Well, I have. Hi, Harry. <laughs> he was mentioned in his will. Um, <clears throat> anyone of a prescribed minimum age can draft a will, and I've deliberately left that prescribed minimum age out because now I want you to put your thinking cap on. What is the minimum age in this country for anybody to be able to draft a will legally? 18? 16? 12? 21? <laughs> Either it was a good guess or you know 
balance. It's the age of 16. The Wills Act tells us that anybody over the age of 16 in their right mind is allowed to have a will. And that, by the way, <clears throat> has very good practical applications. So don't discard that fact. Here's why. Often, you will have a rich aunt or a grandparent, and we get them, that wish to bequeath funds to somebody of a certain age. Now, we're going to be talking about practicalities around testamentary trusts and so on, where these inheritances are held on behalf of those still minor people who at age of majority, as you well know, is the age of 18, can get that money. But so we've got a testamentary trust that holds this stuff, but I've still, it's mine. My aunt pegged and gave me the two, buck, uh, two million bucks. I'm 16. I am allowed to now write a will over that bequest to me so that if I do pass, either now or subsequent to me actually stepping into that inheritance, my words stand. Yeah, let me just give you the, the mic because just so that we can record. So just speak your question. Yeah. Okay, so we have a testamentary trust that you actually are helping us with. Yeah. Um, that is left by my mother for a disabled child. Yes. But she has, in the end of her trust, said that once he passes, where it goes. So yes. he doesn't have. No. No. So what's the difference between a testamentary trust that is left to an able body and a testamentary trust that is left to a disabled? It's very likely that in that specific, because we're dealing with a very specific set of circumstances, that your mom, for very good reason, closed the door behind that bequest at the end. Usually, where you don't have that very set of unique circumstances, that door would not be closed. So there was obviously somebody with some intelligence. I mean, you and I have spoken about this before. So we, we're dealing with uh, a very good set of circumstances. We've already spoken about that whole testamentary trusting, and I want to talk on it today as well because it's an issue that, in my mind, is the most neglected when it comes to wills planning, and you're going to get a shock when I talk to you about it later on. So good point. Your drafting of your will is the most important document you're ever going to draft in your entire life. Because you are now allowed to say whatever you want to. You are determining what you are wanting to do with your earthly possessions when you are not here. By the way, also what is to happen to your body. Whether you are dead or whether you're being kept alive on machines. And I, I say it's the most fundamental because of this. And I bet that doesn't happen. And the reason why the annual review doesn't happen, it's very simple. You are probably sitting with a financial advisor who wants to call themselves a financial advisor, but actually they are an insurance broker. They have absolutely squat zero, not an interest 
in connecting with you on an annual basis to sit and talk to you about what has gone on for the past year or six months in your life. You guys are classic case in point. You've just bought a home. That advisor should have been all over you because your will has to change. Thank you. <laughs> so on an annual basis, your will needs to be reviewed. And we're going to be talking about that because when I get to the tips and hints and practicalities, I'm going to scare you when it comes to things like divorce. I don't know, by the way, is anybody in this room, because I really don't know a lot about your personal circumstances, is there anybody in the room today who is married for the second time? You married for the second time. Okay. So that, if we have a look at those cogs and wheels, that's estate planning. It's about the best drawing that I could get because it's wheels within wheels and cogs within cogs. That's exactly what it is because you have an accumulation phase in your life where you are building up assets. And then you have a preservation phase that locks into a distribution phase in your life at the same time. And you then go back into accumulation. So when you get to retirement, and some of the retirees in this room will tell you, you've built up this pot of money, which you've now accumulated. You're now having to start, in, or rather, you're having to draw down on this pot of money. But at the same time, you're wanting it to accumulate. And you are also looking at how do you become tax efficient in terms of making distributions whilst you're alive. And we're going to talk about that later on, because there's stuff that we're allowed to do now, legally, and there's nothing the government could do to stop you from doing it and not tax you. So we are going to be looking at that as well. So when we're talking about this concept, I can't tell you, let's only have a look at your will and not tell you that what we've got to be doing is looking really at some blocks. I've put four up here because it really sums everything up very nicely and easily. You have personal assets that sit in your own name. You might have a trust, and then we've got to start considering those trust assets. For the guys that have their own businesses, we need to be looking at what are the contractual arrangements that you've already gone into just as the normal course of business, and what are the consequences of that in terms of that business's survival or what it's going to do to pay out into your estate upon your death. And then we're going to start looking at your retirement fund benefits because there's a whole bunch of law around retirement funds as well and what we can and can't do with that. So if you've got questions around any of those things, please write them down now and toss them at me at the end because we can do some really fancy things around those blocks when we start putting your will together and you start mitigating costs and taxes. Okay, so let's have a look at some basic things. If we're going to be doing a will, what do we need to be considering? So if you're married, what's going to happen to the estate of the first deceased? I'm married, what am I going to do with my stuff? Generally, generally, it might want to pass into the hands of my spouse. If you are married, what happens to the joint estate of the second deceased? So what are we going to be doing about the money on the 
death of the second person. If you are married, what is going to happen if both of you are in the motor car or the aircraft? Please don't fly Malaysia Airlines. <laughs> and <laughs> it is shot down. You loved that, didn't you, Glenn? Um, I was going to go, please don't fly German wings, but that would have been terrible. Um, if you are married and then both of you are killed, what happens then? Now we've got some really, really, really hairy questions. Who are going to be the guardians of your minor children? <clears throat> and I want to tell you that this is not an easy decision, and it is not a light decision. I was... That, that that would uh, you know very often this is just this is an assumption so that's a good point you know yes i talk about children but at the same time you can include your grandchildren in there because often this is not attended to and guess what happens grandpa and grandma they are offed somewhere. You've just become a new parent all over again in the latter half of your life. And the consequences are devastating because what you thought you'd planned in terms of your estate and your retirement planning has literally just slid south. Big problem. Okay? I was completely and utterly naive. I was brand new in this business 20-odd years ago. A complete rookie working for the bank, and I did a will. I pitched up to this house, and the couple knew that I was coming, and one of the things that we were going to be talking about was this issue of wills. I should have told them to do some homework before. I didn't know this. <clears throat> and we started to engage around this subject. They weren't the most sophisticated of families in the most sophisticated part of town, and he starts to tell her that he's not leaving his children to her alcoholic parents. She then turns around and starts telling him that her kids are not going to his, and she starts to rattle off a whole bunch of adjectives about his family. <laughs> and this conversation progressively got worse. I backed out of the house with my laptop bag on my head because she literally threw a pot at him. So please don't. <laughs> I beg of you have this discussion around each of your respective families in some sort of civil attitude <laughs> and address that. What happens to the estate of both of you in the event of total family obliteration? What are you going to do with what you have got and all of you are gone? Next, who are you going to appoint as your executor? Very important consideration. Who are you going to appoint as your executor? Question? Is it green? 
Can I ask if that executor should know they their executor before? Absolutely. Yes. No, wouldn't be a bad idea. <laughs> like the guardians. You don't want to sort of like pop up like Casper. <laughs> so, in terms of these basic considerations, here's the premise and here's what happens practically. Question. Go ahead. Please excuse my ignorance. Please, There's no ignorance, please yes. Please define executor. Okay, an executor is the person that you're going to appoint in your will who is going to execute that will. In other words, who's going to take your will, which is your written instructions as to what is going to happen, and make sure it happens. They are the people or persons or person who is now responsible in Entirely for your estate. You are literally upon your death giving everything that you have earthly to this person or persons and saying to them, I trust you implicitly to look after this money to make sure that these people get it, that you wrap up my estate, that you file with the tax authorities, that you file with the legal authorities, that you follow legal due process because we've got a world's act and an Estates Act that tells us exactly what to do. And then, when we've gone through all of this legal process, that this money that is left goes to these people. That's the job of the executor. Now, where you have got a will that has been drafted by your accountant, or where you've got a will that has been drafted by the bank, they have written themselves into that role. So let's hit the pause button because you've asked a good question and we can bring it up later because we're going to talk about tactically how do I get around this. Can I just make a very quick comment there? Your executor has the power to appoint an attorney or and supervise that person. But yeah. it's someone that you trust and to yeah. have your best interests and your yeah. family's best interests at heart. Yeah. So they don't need to have the skill to do all of what... I mean, I can just think everyone's sitting there thinking, oh, okay, anyone who cares about me doesn't have all those skills. Mm. You don't have to have the skill, but it's someone who can make wise decisions and appoint those people. I'm going to tell you tactically what to do at the end. It sounds legality-wise in terms of law. <laughs> so the, 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 there's, there's, a reason, there's a reason why the banks, there's a reason why the banks want, want to do this. There's a very good reason why the banks want to do this. Because the executor's fees in this country are legalized. There's, there's legislation around what the executor can charge. The master of the high court has got the power to overrule that. So here's the charge. Your estate will be charged 3.5% on the total value of that estate plus VAT. So you're looking at 3.99% of the total value of your estate. Now, I want to quickly do a mathematical calculation with you. Let's take a basic estate. You die, you leave four and a half million behind. We're gonna talk about what is duty-free. It's called a rebate. It's called a section 4A rebate. At, that, at this point, it's three and a half million. You've got a four and a half million estate. Three and a half million, we take off of that. We're left with a million, why? Because the government says right now you don't pay any estate duty on the first three and a half million 
of your estate. So we taxed at 20% of a million, which is 200,000 rand. That's the estate duty on a four and a half million estate. Okay? We can get around that. But I'm wanting to prove mathematically what you're in for. The executor executes this will. It is the bank. What are they charging? 3.5% plus VAT on. 4.5 million. So, I've just told you that the government takes 20% of a million. 200,000 rand goes to the government. What do you think the bank is about to earn? They're going to earn 179,000 odd in change. 179,000. Don't let anybody tell you, oh, it's only 3.5%. No, 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 no. There's something else that they're forgetting to mention to you too, Mr. and Mrs. Entrepreneur. Because when they step into your business, they are collecting fees on every rand that pours into that business at a legislated amount of 6% per rand plus VAT. I've shocked you. So we have dealt with executor. Here's your personal assets. That's what you look like. I'm hoping that the whole idea, I need a will, I need a will, I need a will, I need a will, I need a will now, start sinking. Personal assets. When you die, your personal assets now are not yours. The moment you blow out your last breath, according to our law, this is what happens. Those now are the assets of the deceased estate and they are no longer yours. There's this new legitimate legal body that is formed. The living, breathing one is dead. The legal one is now come into being. And the very first thing that your executor needs to do is run along to the bank and open up a deceased estate in your name with your death certificate. Because the very next thing that's going to happen is all of your bank accounts in your name and in your company's name are going to get frozen. Um, just to comment on that, the banks don't know that you're dead until there's a death certificate. Correct. Okay. Yeah, no, we're going we to play with that. We had a flat panic that um, everything would be shut down. No, we'll tell you, you have, how to get around yeah, that. You it have is. to have the death certificate, and the death certificate can sometimes take months. That looks like a very familiar pen you're holding. Did you get it from me? No, I'm just, I'm, just, I'm just wondering, you know, whether it's the last time you saw me that you bloody, you scaled my pen. Okay. No, I'm just checking. Okay. Very first thing that we're going to be looking at practically, guys, what is your marital regime? Am I speaking English or am I speaking a foreign language? I want to know how are you married, in or out of community of property? You're not married. You're shacked up. What are you? So... <laughs> I hear a lot of those. Let's go. So first question we need to ask is who qualifies as a spouse? Very, very important question. If you're married, it's very easy. It's the person who's sitting next to you with the wedding ring on your <laughs> finger, hopefully. But it is not always that easy. If you are not in a proper marital union that has been obviously gone through the church, legalized and all of that stuff, 
Then the next question is, who qualifies as your spouse? The law got changed in just after 1994, where it was amended in 1996, that if the person you are living with has been living with you for six months, they are your spouse. <laughs> You've got commitment issues. I think you need to, yeah. Do not go into a union and after five months, scorp her out. This is very, very, very unwise. <clears throat> Your name is not Jacob Zuma. Usually what happens is, it's not, it's not, it's not, I mean, how do they, how do they prove it? <laughs> it's, a lot of this comes out, uh, not really when you're alive, but it comes out when you're dead. So, I ask about what is your marital property regime, and I go into the very next question, do you understand it? So, there were some of you who very gallantly told me, I'm married, antinuptial, with accrual. Who is going to be brave enough to take the microphone and explain that back to me? Okay, do you want to... You want to give the microphone over to Glenn because Glenn is going to tell us what married antinuptial with accrual means. Yeah, well, each member or each party comes in with what they've got. Correct. So if Nikki owned a house when he got married, that's Nikki's. I've got yeah. no claim to that whatsoever. And if I came in just with my motor car, that's my Nikki's got no claim to that. From the date of our marriage going forward, whatever we then jointly get together or accrue, mm -hmm. so another house or property or whatever it may be, then that is ours together, which is then used that we can then have a say over when it comes to our estate. But I've got no say over Nikki's house that she had prior to us being married. Okay, I'll give you half points. <laughs> you, would have, you would have got half the points. You're on the right road. So here's what it is. You're 100% correct. The assets that each of you have prior to marriage are noted on that accrual agreement. Everything that you then accrue after marriage and when that marriage ends either on divorce or on death, there now has to be a recalculation and revaluation of those two values that you came in with. Nikki had a house of a million. You had a motor car of 200,000. You are married for 30 years and then you die. But you were the major breadwinner. We've got to then revalue, and there's a technical way of doing it. We pump in an interest rate uh, calculation on these two, bring them up to present day values, we take your joint estate after marriage, split it, add these two numbers together, and he who ends up with the biggest share has to now divide that and share it with the other. So if your estate, even though you only came in with 200,000, grows faster than Nikki's estate that she came in with a million, 
you have to share your growth with Nikki. If Nikki's estate grows faster than yours, she has to share hers with you. So that's what accrual means, which brings me down to the next technical question. I can see hands going up all over because now everybody's going, hell, nobody's <laughs> ever explained this to me. I've got a major problem in my life. <laughs> there are exclusions to that. There are exclusions to that, and here are some of them. Where you have inherited any asset via inheritance, it is specifically excluded from the accrual calculation. So where you've, in, where you've got any payout as a result of a dreaded disease claim or a disability claim, or a claim from the motor vehicle accident fund, my wife is going, oh, hallelujah. Bugger can't get my money. Uh, <laughs> any one of those three are also specifically excluded from the calculation. It's all of that. Nikki, you've got a question? Okay, so... I've just inherited, and yes. part of my inheritance went into the house. Yes. But the house had to be in Glenn's name. Yes. Because of the fact that the bond had to be in his name. <laughs> okay. So I, my question is, yeah. Yes. So my question yes. is, that half of the house that I gave him the deposit for is mine. Oh yeah. And oh, it's yeah. excluded from that. Yep. So what you've got to do. <laughs> This is so valuable to me. This, is, this brings all of this home to reality because we're talking about stuff that is real in our church. Please, pretty please, when you do this, you please, and in your case it's easy, you have to attach, and I know you've got it, you will attach your mother's bequest to you. Okay. So you will attach your mother's bequest. Oh, absolutely. Oh, absolutely. You will attach your mother's bequest and any other subsequent paperwork surrounding the purchase of the house, you will attach, because then we've got to go into a revaluation. Yeah. Are you going to discuss the other sort of antinatural contract which doesn't have accrual, where you specify yes. what you have? Yeah. So in terms of that's accrual, then you've got an antinatural contract where what's mine is mine and what's yours is yours, and it will be. So we are two separate estates running parallel to each other, um, for the rest of our married lives. That's a straight antinatural contract. Now, we can do some funny things for during our lifetimes, and we are allowed to give stuff to our wives and husbands if you are married in that fashion. Those bequests might be verbal. You might have said to her, my darling, I love you. You can have the beach house. It's yours. Say again. Oh, I recorded on your phone. Now, people use proper technology. We don't use Apple in our industry. <laughs> yeah. 
doesn't it depend what kind of asset you actually come in with? Because I mean, a 200,000 rand motor car after 10 years is going to be worth 20 grand and a 1 million rand house is going to be worth one and a half. So, no. You, you know, you can, get super, you can get super technical around a whole bunch of stuff. You can turn around and say that that is the value of my estate the day that I came in. I came in with 200,000 rand. My car was paid off. I worked my Ali off as a student. I bought the car. I liked the BMW, and I paid that damn thing off. So I've got, if I pass away today, Mrs. that you're about to get married to, that's my worth. My worth is 200,000 rand today. So whether the car depreciates to squat over the next five years, doesn't matter. It's irregardless. I came in with 200,000. I want to be, uh, it's the financial value that I've brought into this household at that point. I mean, you're planning to live forever or 20, 30 years. So, yes. So, does that answer those questions, Rod? Where, what you do? Now, as a consequence, again, to get back to that specific where you have made verbal promises, you have to follow that up into your will. I'm going to talk about something at the end. It's called a letter of wishes. Or you could put it into the specific bequests, and you will note that there. Okay. And then here's the question. Are you a surviving spouse? I don't know if we've got any of them in. There's a reason why I put that in, because if you are a surviving spouse, your previous husband has passed away, there's probably pension fund benefits that now need to come into account somewhere. And we need to have a look at that in terms of what you have done with them, what was that bequest, and how do we treat it in this will. So are you starting to get the idea that this isn't something that's a slap and tickle, I go into the bank, pull out three questions, and come back next week, and I'll give you a document to sign? Whole idea for today is I'm planting seeds. Okay. So in terms of this accrual claim, um, which spouse has the claim? Obviously the one that's got the highest growth. That brings me to this question. We're doing this will, and you're making all of this stuff, and you're promising her earth, moon, and stars, and everything going into a trust, and don't worry, sweetheart, you're getting the life cover, and it's all yours, blah, blah, blah. The person who's done this, have they sat down and run a liquidity test on your estate? Is there enough cash in this estate? When I die, bearing that in mind, bearing this picture in mind, plenty, I've got 10 million life cover. The 10 million life cover has got a beneficiary on it, hopefully. And it may or may not be all of it to your spouse. I'm going to talk about the practicalities of that policy. But that is no longer your deceased estate's money. It's your wife's. I'm talking about that entity there the assets of the deceased estate. You are dead. You did not die. I yet have to have one. I look after a lot of entrepreneurial people. 
and these buggers won't listen to me. They die on every other day but the 28th of February. I don't know what it is with them. Recalcitrant. Which means, madam or sir, I have to pay your income tax bill. Proportionate for the year. And your capital gains tax bill. And every other bill. And by the way, I still got to bury you. Or cremate you. And, 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 and. So I've got to find cash somewhere in there. That you have not given to your dear missus. Which brings me back to my question. Liquidity. Mm. Can I ask a question yes. again? If, if I may, you, you're saying assets there. But at this stage, you know, a lot of people are paying off a bond. So the big one being the house. Mm -hmm. Now, in terms of that deceased estate, mm -hmm. um, likely and for now, the, the house had been in my name. Obviously, down the line, we'd probably share it. Mm -hmm. But if it was, and what had just transpired now, for some reason, let's say Glenn had passed. Mm -hmm. Money's now been put in. Mm -hmm. What happens then? Because that it, it's still a liability. The bank has, let's say, owed a million rand on a, on a two million rand house. Okay. So practically what will happen in that case is hopefully the person that is helping you is going to ask you this question. Hopefully we're going to go and have a look at that issue about liquidity. Hopefully you've been a little bit left-brained and he has spoken or she has spoken you into some life cover, sorry, that we can cover that bond with. And then under the Usury Act, of this country, when you die, it is very wise to let the bank that holds that bond know very, very, very quickly because they freeze the interest rate portion at the moment of death. Under the usury laws of this country, no bank is allowed to continue to charge interest on a mortgage bond of a deceased. So they've got to stop the interest, you've still got to pay it, but they've got to stop the interest. Okay? And then, when we've answered these questions, in your particular case, Pascal, then we can start going back to the will. What are you wanting to do? Are you wanting to give it to her? How do you wish to treat that asset? Bearing in mind that two things has happened. Firstly, the million outstanding on the mortgage is now settled. But the house is no longer worth two million, probably worth three, or whatever the number is, because we've had asset appreciation. Uh, asset appreciation. So, and it's a cash asset. And and what are you doing with that? So, it gets back to this. I'm trying to take your balloon, and I'm deliberately puncturing it with pins today, because I bet you the stuff has not been treated. Nikki, go. This liquidity thing is exactly why I pointed out that the bank doesn't know yes. the person is dead until a death certificate. Because one of the instructions my mother always said to me all her life is, the minute you know I'm dead, go and draw all the money you can yeah. out of the account. Yeah, we're going to do my that. My mother made sure that there was enough money to, bury, uh, to cremate her. Yeah. Okay, so that's just something just to keep in we're mind. We're going to look at the always practical. make sure that there's that cash. My mom's was 15000 Glenn's dad was 8500 so you're looking at anywhere between that's just eight the, and a half that's, and 15. That's just burial costs, huh? Yeah. 
That's just burial cost. Yeah. I, I, I dealt with an estate where there, there, was, there was practicalities around, and I've still got them. His sister is divorced. His sister gets the kids. Here's the problem. She lives in Atlanta. So I now have to wrap up a deceased estate and take said kids and put said kids on airplane and fly them to Atlanta with cash. We've already had a deceased estate, and it was funny, um, <laughs> where his wish was to have his ashes scattered abroad. I've dealt with the, wind, uh, with the will. It's still on my desk. The client has got to come in and sign it. They want their ashes scattered abroad. Uh, they specified where, but here was the fancy bit. He was clever because he listened to me. I said, you're dead, China. Here's millions. Give the oak who's died to cart these ashes at least a bit of luxury. I mean, park the ashes on a business class seat next to this oak who's flying business class. The state is paying for it. It's a total tax deduction in the state because it's a deductible. So the government paid two business class air tickets to have ashes flown overseas and distributed. Squeeze the government for every last cent you can if you've got millions. I've given you the wording. You guys have got the notes. I use that a lot in terms of liquidity in accrual claims where you married ANC with accrual. Just be very careful on interest-free loans. The Minister of Finance earlier this year spoke about interest-free loans. They now may be additional taxes on an interest-free loan in terms of donations. It's bad enough that estate duty is at 20%. It would be disastrous if you bequeath via your will an interest-free loan to somebody, and then there's not a 20% donations tax on top of that. So... We've got some thinking to do. Let's move on. Um, here's an exclusion clause I've given to you. I do this a lot. It's worth your while if you are young. So that it's protection. It's protection for what you have built and it's protection for your spouse and for your kids. Because you are young, your wife can go out and remarry again and hopefully still live a very pleasant and enjoyable life. But if you have left her substantial money, her new husband with his brood will not ever benefit by your hard work. There's the clause, and that's how you would put it in um, and have a look at it. It's very important, particularly in accrual marriages. You have it a lot, particularly if you are married. Who's married in community of property? Just as a show of hands. Anybody married in community? Your default is in community of property. If you're married under British law, if you were married in the UK, then your default is in community of property. Which brings me to the next question. If you marry in South Africa and you do not know what you are, what are you? You're married in community of property. If you married after 1984 and you say, I want to get married, anti-nuptial contract, and you sign some piece of paper that might say those words, what is the default if you're married, antinuptial contract. If you're married, antinuptial contract, after 1984, and you say, 
I want to get married, anti-nuptial contract, the default is with accrual. So you are married, default, anti-nuptial contract, with accrual. With accrual, okay? And then there's another reason why you want to have this in, because if your will says this, I leave this stuff to my wife, she gets married again, and new husband, and he goes in solvent. You are protected under Section 21 of the Insolvency Act. Her estate can't get attached by his creditors. Okay? There's a reason for that. So, let's start with the technical stuff, where we're going to move money to, how we're going to move it, and who's going to be doing it, and how do we avoid tax. Single will or a joint will, I personally recommend single wills. There's a very good reason for it. It's easier to administer single will at death. Because now I've got to do joint. Because you've got a joint will. It is a schlep. I can tell you what we're going to be talking about at the end. Because who's got a will, by the way, that's a joint will done by a bank? You've got a joint will done by a bank. I'm going to show you something at the end that is going to give you sleepless nights and you will run out of here <laughs> screaming and go home and you will rip that will up. So very little will change on, in the hands of the surviving spouse if you've got two single wills. You're also going to have very little fighting at the end in terms of getting this all sorted out as opposed to joint wills. Next one, Gary touched on it in the intro to this course. Nikki's mentioned it. Pretty pleased with a cherry on the top and a custard filling. I couldn't care what you run your household like. I'm not here to get involved in that. Please, husband and wife, go and get two separate bank accounts. You, you get bank accounts today that cost you virtually nothing. Just go and shove 100 rand or 200 rand or 500 rand into the damn account and leave it. But make sure that each of you have got separate bank accounts for the very reason that when the significant other has gone and croaked, that you can start moving money, that money can go in, that joint bank accounts aren't frozen. It's vitally important. And we're going to be talking about some other stuff in a minute, so I won't skip to that. I've mentioned Keeper Boy. You want to avoid this frozen bank accounts. The nice part is where you have an existing family trust, of course the family trust does not stop breathing just because you have. So that family trust's bank accounts will continuously function. Make sure that both of you, of course, have got transactional rights and signing powers on a trusted bank account. And your significant other then can continue to live. Just by the way, that does not mean your company continues to live. It was yours. Gavin. Sorry, Ian. The... When you say trust, family trust account, mm -hmm. I've just heard that it's pretty difficult to set those up and pretty costly. Is that still the case? Is it worth it for a, for a guy earning a normal salary that hasn't got five million rand in assets? Yeah, I would agree with Grant. There is no hard and fast rule. There is no hard and fast rule. So I would want to interrogate... Personally, I love trusts, and I lecture on the subject all over the country, as you well know. I would want to fully understand a little bit more as to why you are wanting to set up a trust, even though you say that you don't have a lot of money. There could be very good reason for it, because you could be going through an estate planning exercise, 
you might be wanting to embark on for your own personal planning to acquire property or whatever. You might be wanting to branch out and start a business. Um, and things like growth assets like that would then go into a trust. Setting up a trust is a costly exercise because you're running two sets of costs concurrently. You're running the accounting function, accounting, auditing, and all of that stuff that you've got to do on a trust and submit the tax on an annual basis, even if it is a zero tax return. But at the same time, you now need somebody to stand next to you and govern and run and manage and all of that kind of stuff. So you're looking at those costs as well. So it can be an expensive exercise, but it could be good money where you have an entrepreneurial flair and you are wanting to get into some growth assets. Don't come and talk to me, and I get this all the time, and then I've got to haul out my fat stick and explain to these buttes that have now run off, and I'm sitting with a 100 million rand company, and I go, I've got an estate duty problem. Damn square, brother, you've got an estate duty problem, and you're wanting me to make this disappear overnight. How do I vanish 100 million out of your name? I want to had a very funny discussion about that last night. Okay. Okay, so to give you an idea um, as to what you're looking at, so I'll tell you what my fees are, and I am under massive pressure at Citadel to change it. I haven't yet, despite the fact that I am under the whip. For a start-to-finish, end-to-end process of the trust deed with me right now is still 6,900 Rand inclusive of that. And then I don't take your name and your ID number and I throw it into a little computer and spit out a 42-page trust deed. Um, no. It's a consultative process. I still go through because I want to know and understand what it is you're trying to do. So we've got to build that trust deed around your requirements and start talking to you around what it is that you're wanting to achieve with it. Um, but it's 6,900 Rand, uh, start to finish, and that's what you would pay me, and I would take that and break out some fees, because I've now got to pay couriers, and I've got to pay the master of the high court, and I've got to file it and get back and give it to you in a nice document. So that end-to-end -end process with me is still 6,900 Rand. Oh, there's a sample. He brought his trust deed. We've gone a little bit more fancy than that. I, actually, you haven't seen me in a year, so I do feel chastised. I don't feel sorry for you that you're still sitting with that. You should have been getting the new one in a new folder, and it looks a whole lot more. But that's you. But, that, <laughs> but, but we've, we've gone a little bit more up class since then. There we go. So that's that set up. Then your annual running costs average on accounting fees is about 12,000 Rand, 15,000 Rand a year tops. And you're looking at the same figure for administration and governance. Uh, there's a reason for that because the receiver of revenue is after trusts. And here's what he's going to do. He's going to attack them. He has not been shy about it. The Minister of Finance has not minced his words. He is out to get your trust finished and clar. And the only thing that will stop him from penetrating that trust is how you have run it 
on an annual basis because the trust is not yours. When you open up a trust deed and when you have established this trust, you are giving away what you have to others to look after on your behalf. And as a consequence of this giving away process, whatever is in there, therefore, when you die is not yours, and therefore the government can't come after it, take it and tax it. That's the premise. But if you're going to do that, says our minister, and I've been trumpeting this now for five years off of the stage, and everybody that pitches up to my trust talks and seminars around the country are sick and tired of hearing me talk about the subject, when I have said to them, the day will come, when you file your trust and your accounting, etc., with SARS, they are going to reject your tax claim. The day is coming. And nobody wanted to believe me, and the day is here. So, yes, big fat tick for Ian, because the minister is now saying, prove to me that you have separated the treatment of this trust from who you are. So that's what you're paying, 15,000 rand plus to somebody for. So you're looking at about 30,000 rand a year in costs. Pascal, I'll get you in a minute. Nikki. Ian, I don't know if you're going to cover the difference between a testamentary and an intra vivo. I'm going to get you And which is the better one to do? No, I'm going to do that, yes. Pascal? Yeah, just, just maybe some advice on that. Uh, I mean, I think a few of us here have got our own businesses. Uh, from a stakeholding perspective or shareholder perspective, um, is it prudent to put the shares of the company in, in, in the trust's name or in your individual name? Very good question. If it's a growth asset, my answer instantly is move that shareholding out of your name. Move it out of your name. And we've got clever accounting means to get that thing out of your name into a trust at very low costs and values. Um, that's why, despite the fact that number crunches like Grant here, they seem, and like Gary, are dead, boring, geriatric kind of people. <laughs> but believe, believe it or not, I mean, you have to look at the, the look that I just got from Gary now. That is why, even though they look this straight up and down demure, they are very, very crafty gymnasts in moving money around on balance sheets. <laughs> love it. I love it. I move money and I move assets around legitimately on that stuff. So it's a wonderful thing. Let's get going. Rather than appoint an executor, rather than appoint an executor, appoint your wife, appoint your husband as your executor. Worth Full rights of powers and assumption. You put that into your clause. Why? Yes. 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 Absolutely. So the question is, can I have a reserve executor? What happens if we both die together? Your will says, in the event of us both dying together, I then appoint Ian van Kruijen and completely to rape, pillage, and plunder my... <laughs> <laughs> so... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but absolutely. Here's why. Here's why, people. 